You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Eric. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'll live, thank you. How are you? That's all a person can ask for in these trying times, Eric. Let me introduce <laughs> this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Eric Alterman. Distinguished professor of English, not to be confused with a regular professor of English. Yeah, I'm straight. At City University of New York, specifically Brooklyn College. Author of the bestseller, Why Liberal Media, The Truth About Bias in the News. And more recently, Lying in State, Why Presidents Lie and Why Trump is Worse. In fact, you and I recently had a conversation about that on this very platform. But what brings Very us much enjoyed. Very what, much enjoyed. What brings us together today is the ending of a journalistic epoch. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, for lo these many years, you have been writing a media column for the nation, the, the, uh, venerable left-leaning periodical. Not, 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 not the whole country. I mean, not the nation in the sense of the United States of America, but in the sense of the magazine and, and yes. now website. Uh, and in fact, the transition from magazine to website, uh, speaks directly to the conversation we're having, I guess, because we're going to look back on the last 25 years of media through your eyes, maybe to some extent through mine, uh, and the last year of media and whatever else comes to mind. Is that okay? Uh, that's great. I appreciate it, Bob. Thank you. You've earned it. You've earned it. You could, After all, you did come up with the term, the punditocracy. You know, I, popul- I just found out in the past month that I didn't. Oh, that must have been crushing. Is that the I reason you're giving? You. Is that the reason you're giving up the column? I can't tell you how crushing it was because I thought that was going to be on my tombstone, and it's so frustrating because the first person to use it, it turns out, I learned this in the Wall Street Journal this month or last month, this month, very recently, um, that Michael Kinsley used it before I did. Did he really? I, I didn't know that. And um, I thought I came up with it by myself. And, of course, I popularized it. I put it in the title of my 1992 book. And it's so funny because when I read this piece in the Wall Street Journal, I'm like, this can't be true. And I searched the term, and I found that I had written a letter to Slate telling Kinsley to stop using the term commentariat because punditocracy was so much of a better term. When I first coined punditocracy, I was very young, and I was very proud of myself. And I had an assistant that knows this. One thing we can talk about is I used to get paid a lot more money in those days to do what I do. Um, and I had, I used to have him send, uh, letters. I don't know if, the, I don't think they were emails to the OED for every time people use punditocracy because that was my ambition to get it into the OED so I would live forever. And I did. And it worked. And in fact, if you, in the OED, they, they, they use it. And I think they, they use it in a sentence I used. At least they did last time I checked. But, uh, there's no question that Kinsley just threw it out there one day, forgot he did, and and I I started using it a few months later. Maybe but that I, fact has not made it into the OED yet. His his earlier usage is not in the OED. I, I don't know. The the guy who wrote the column in the Wall Street Journal, he found it somehow, and that must be how he found it. Interesting, because when you said he had he had come up with a word, I thought, but I thought Mike's preferred term was commentariat. Yeah, it, uh, I remember it was. him using that he, around the he, offices of the New Republic. He's such a casual genius that he came up with it and forgot it and chose the other term. Whereas here I was plugging away to get it, you know, famous. Anyway, I popularized it. I get, I get credit. It's funny because 
I also get credit for working the refs, which I also popularized and didn't come up with. If you look in Sapphire's um, political dictionary. You mean as applied to the media, taking an athletic term and applying it to the media. Right. But again, that was somebody else. Um, If you look in Sapphire's political dictionary, he gives me credit for uh, the term uh, wedge issue. He says, I invented that. Which, of course, I, I couldn't have invented it. No. And I used it. It had been around. But it, he, that was the earliest he could find. So I get credit for two terms that I I sort of in, uh, in, uh, I popularized and one that I allegedly invented. Mm-hmm. One that I failed with was um, on the one handism, which uh, I tried to apply to false equivalence or, or both sidesism, but that didn't right. take at all. That was a failure. Right. The term used to be false equivalence. Now the, si- the term is both sidesism. And I've wondered about the exact relationship between both sidesism and on the one handism. You, 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 you're saying they're basically the same. Yeah. Um, as I, as I understand them. Yeah. As you understand them. So speaking of, uh, Mike Kinsley and my days at the New Republic, I think maybe the earliest in-person encounter I remember with you is that we had lunch about the time I went down to work at the New Republic which was in 1988, maybe not that long after that. I think we had lunch. I remember the restaurant we had lunch at. You may yeah. not. I don't. You recommended it. Wait, you 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 recruited, you tried to recruit me to write a book about the New Republic, didn't you? Okay, that might have been the occasion. So maybe we had seen before. I, I, I was briefly editor of New Republic books. I remember, yeah. That yeah. didn't work out well. I, I, I was, I was, I had that title for seven months and acquired zero books. And, um, and, and that was my sign that maybe this was not my calling, signing up books. My, my encounter with you was another sign, perhaps, because apparently I didn't sign up one with, from you. But no. we had lunch at Atello's on Connecticut Avenue at your recommendation. Very nice Italian oh, restaurant yeah. that almost certainly doesn't exist anymore. But yeah. I, I just, when you think about now, this was a little before the beginning of your 25 year reign as a nation media columnist, but technologically, it's about the same as 1995 in the sense that it's fundamentally pre-internet. 1995, the internet was just starting to happen. Uh, I mean, Slate was founded, I think, in 1996. Most of us had email addresses by 95, but even that was a new thing. Right. Well, and, most people date it. Most people date the political internet to drudge. Well, that's more was, like what? 2000? No, no. That was 96. No, that, that was 96. 97. That story broke in 97. When, when he, when Drudge got the Newsweek story about Monica Lewinsky that Newsweek had killed and put it up on AOL. Ah, uh, yes. That was Jan, I can tell you that was January 17th, 1997. Yeah. Okay. So. A lot has changed since then. I mean, one thing I say sometimes to people who are millennials and younger is imagine this. I was once sitting in an office at the New Republic and the sum total of the information I had at my disposal, if I wanted to write about the world, was the physical books and magazines in my office. That was it. That alone blows their minds. You realize that there are people who can't comprehend a world like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, and the only way to find out something that wasn't something you subscribed to or a newspaper or magazine that you bought was to have friends who cut it out and mailed it to you. you uh-huh. So everyone had a very limited amount of information. And, and in those days, 
there was much more, this was part of what made the new Republic quote unquote great. There was much more emphasis on inside information because now everybody has access to almost everything almost immediately. But back then only certain people knew certain things at certain times. And mm-hmm. that made you really cool if you were, if you knew things before everybody else, even if it was only a few hours, like till the next day's newspaper came out. Yeah. And so just being in an office like the New Republic was itself a big informational advantage because you would have, even if only like half a dozen journalists were there, their combined knowledge was pretty impressive by the standards of the day. Um, So, yeah, it's it's different now. Now, um, when you look back, are you most impressed by things that have changed about journalism, including like the famously balkanized media landscape. Not that there was no balkanization in the old days, but still there's that. Or are you more impressed by um, continuity? Like, uh, do you find yourself complaining more about things that have changed or just more about things that have been with us? Well, I complain less because I'm older and I'm, I'm I'm more used to everything not being the way I think it should. I think it's supposed to work the other way around, but you can do old age however you want, Eric. Yeah, no, I think you're supposed I'm, to complain I'm much more. more at peace with the world than I was in the period we're talking about. But I'll tell you what, uh, aside from the balkanization, which is what most people talk about. But um, when I wrote Sound and Fury, which came out, in, I started in 1989 and it came out in 1992. Um, and, and that, popularized the term punditocracy. The punditocracy was very small. It it was between two dozen and three dozen people whose opinions were allowed to matter. It was very anti-democratic. You know, the people who, like the people, the the New Republic editors, the top ones and the Washington Post and New York Times columnists and people on Agronsky and the McLaughlin Group and maybe NPR, maybe the LA Times, but not really a few from the Wall Street Journal. That was about it, Time and Newsweek. That was it. Um, they didn't live lives like the rest of America did at all. They, they didn't worry about the quality of public schools. They didn't worry about the, the quality of subways. They, they lived lives almost exactly like the lives of congressmen and senators. And their concerns reflected that fact. And um, I, I, I was very, I became very impressed back then, and I still am, and I've written about this, many dozens of times, the debate between Walter Lippmann and John Dewey about the nature of the role of journalism in a democracy and whether or not democracy is even possible. And Dewey used to argue that, um, that if, you, if you become part of the culture that you are supposed to be covering, then you lose the ability to speak to the people who, for whom you're covering it. And Lippmann argued on behalf, they said the expertise was more important then the, the, the culture being the political culture. Yeah. yeah. In other words, I mean, in, in, I mean, in that the view- way I tell it, the way I used to tell to my students, I don't teach journalism anymore, but I used to say, look, you're all in college now and you care what the people here think about you. You don't care what the people at high school think about you anymore. Mm-hmm. You're not part of that culture. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you care about where you are, where you're located. And that's the same was true of those people who, who became the, became part of the Washington establishment through journalism. People like Chris Matthews who could go back and forth between uh, journalism and 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 uh, politics. George Stephanopoulos, um, and uh, and uh, and I used to argue in my first book 
that what we needed was we had a Littman-like journalistic world where expertise and insider information was valued, and we needed more Dewey. We needed we needed an, in, an input of democratic values so that people who did not live this rarefied life where eating at restaurants like you and I ate that one day um, would see their values represented. Um, more like more like sports radio, I had in mind. Uh, Noam Chomsky had pointed out that when you listen to sports radio, people really know what they're talking about. When you, they talk about politics, they don't. Well, the Internet changed all that. I wrote a long article in The New Yorker about this. Um, one of the few long articles I've written in New Yorker about how the, it was right around the time that the Huffington Post was founded. Um, and I said, and I thought, this is great because the, the world is being Deweyized. That was how I put it to Remnick when he asked me what I wanted to write. I said, I want to write about Lipman and Dewey in today's world. And I expected to say, how wonderful. We're, we're going to have a democratic political establishment now. And then I looked at it and it was all crap. You know, the, the Internet was like the bathroom walls of, of, of a college dorm room, a dormitory. Uh, and, and so we now have a world in which they, uh, it began first with talk radio and then the Internet. Uh, but we have a world in which uh, opinion, commentary, the discourse has been, quote unquote, democratized. Uh, and it's a much worse world. Because as terrible as Fred Barnes and Morton Kondracki were. Who had offices they, next to mine at the New Republic. And I yes. and let me say a word in their defense. Both both fine, upstanding human beings. Fine. But, Somewhat to my right, especially Fred. But Well, uh, they, they were basically selling whatever uh, Kitty at that time, the Bush administration, was peddling. And um, uh, I remember... Um, Leon, we did you, here. did you, can I just say quickly, did you not enjoy their Fox News weekly TV show, The Beltway Boys, whose theme song was, do you remember the theme song, Eric? I'm going to tell you a secret now that I can tell you that I'm no longer writing my column. After I published Sound and Fury, I never, ever watched a single game. Well, then perhaps I can help you out here. The boys <laughs> are back in town. Oh, really? Remember, that, remember that horror of a song? Of a song? I like that song. Ten well, Lisa, Boys are back in town. We'll, we'll save that. Disagree. Let's agree to disagree on that. Anyway, that was the okay. theme song of the Beltway Boys. I digress. Go ahead. You were moving anyway, on to Leon. Anyway, what's happened is that the extreme right wing first colonized talk radio uh, because the um, the Reagan administration got rid of the fairness doctrine, and it, turned, it turns out that people who listen to radio only want to listen to right wingers except for liberals want to hear NPR, which is quote unquote both sides and right wingers just want to hear right wingers. And then the internet, uh, the internet, you can argue that it's not entirely colonized by right wingers, but together with Fox and uh, talk radio and Facebook now, particularly um, the discourse is, has really become impossibly stupid uh, and, and malevolent and malevolent. And so uh, I never thought I would, but I'm nostalgic for the days when we had gatekeepers who, again, were anti-democratic and had some very bad ideas and got us into Vietnam and were all together too sympathetic to the Reagan administration in Central America and so forth. But they had a sense of responsibility to the larger culture, to the, to the country. And, and the people who set the terms of debate now, these morons on, on talk radio and on Fox at night, uh, they don't. And they and they drive things. Everyone responds to them. So the biggest change, I would say, is the lack of 
the destruction of the sense of responsibility on 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 behalf of an establishment that no longer that is has, has itself been destroyed. Okay, uh, but don't you think? I, I mean, you're 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 emphasizing the right wing influence on the internet and cable TV, and certainly in the realm of uh, certainly they've held their own in cable TV, and they and they for whatever reason dominate talk radio. But uh, they also dominate cable TV. Fox has twice the viewers that CNN and MSNBC have. I believe they have twice the viewers that they I have think, combined. I think lately that hasn't oh, been well, as you're true. talking about the past few weeks but yeah of course the other thing that's that. happening is fox is losing some of its off uh, audience to one american news and newsmax so there's there's we'll a see. fragmentation that just makes my case even stronger yeah the um but i i don't know i mean cnn and msnbc aren't nothing ratings wise i i, I would submit the um yeah, and you look know at cnn Look at CNN. Look at the crazy right wingers they have on that. On that. On that. Well, that's another they question. You know Donald Trump. If if Jeff Zucker had not had Jeffrey Lord and Kelly McAnany, et cetera, there and 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 not allowed Trump to lie without and and Corey Lewandowski, CNN has no respect for truth. MSNBC. I don't watch it. I can't say whether or not they do or not. But CNN, I know they don't, and that's in part because the discourse is driven by. The likes of Fox. Yeah, see, there we have a fundamentally different diagnosis, at least when it comes to very recent years. I think, I mean, I think it's true that Jeff Zucker helped make Trump president by uh, televising everything Trump chose to do publicly live uh, in 2016. But, um, but I think, you know, I, I think CNN, uh, during Trump's presidency, I, I guess they feel a need to have uh, some number of Trump defenders, uh, but usually on a panel, the ratio is about one to four or something. I think, and I'm sure you disagree here, that uh, basically CNN, like the New York Times and the Washington Post and MSNBC, has joined the resistance. And I think that has its own perils and has helped Trump in its own way. Uh, I mean, I, just, I disagree fundamentally. But but let's just finish off CNN. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on it because... I'm not an expert on it, but Jeff Zucker, I've written this many times. Jeff Zucker hired Corey Lewandowski during the 2016 campaign after he was fired by the Trump campaign after he punched a woman. But that's not why he was fired. That's fine. I don't care. Anyway, he hired Corey Lewandowski, even though Corey Lewandowski had signed a non-disclosure agreement that included a non-disparagement clause. So Corey Lewandowski was legally forbidden from telling the truth about Trump. And yet he was still hired. Why? Because Jeff Zucker wanted to have a exciting TV program where Trump was represented. He didn't care that he was purposely misinforming his audience. That was fine. That was unimportant. What was important was the entertainment value of the show and to be at the center of things. And, and, and that to me, the New York Times I had a lot of criticism in the New York Times and the Washington Post, but they don't print things they know are false. And CNN all the time allows people to say things that are false. You know, if you had Daniel Dale, who I, I'm, I think is the most important journalist alive in the Trump era. If you had Daniel Dale, he's, he's the guy who counts Trump's lies. He's, right, he's, he's a hired away from the, he was hired away from the Toronto Star. He doesn't just count. No, he doesn't count his lies. He puts his lies in context. He says he's lying about this for the 300th time, and here's why he lies about this particular 
thing. If he was on like next to the people at CNN all day, he would be saying, no, that's false. No, that's false. No, that's false. So that's, it's just, it's constantly built on uh, a, a, a platform that I'm not saying they want to lie. I'm just saying they don't care. They're in the entertainment business. They're not in the news business. Yeah. You won't hear me defend Jeff Zucker. Um, my, some of my criticisms would be different uh, from yours, but I, I agree that, you know, probably ever since Rune Arledge went to ABC News from ABC Sports, it's been, you know, more and more the case that... that exactly. News- Zucker, Zucker always talks about the news as if it's sports. Yeah. That's that's the metaphor he uses. Yeah. Um, the uh, So, a, a, a little digression here um, before we get back to, to what we we're talking about. Um, foreign policy... Uh, this is my big grievance about media is 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 the the coverage of foreign policy. I mean, I, if you of of all of the you know, and I'm talking about the non right wing. In fact, in some ways, Fox is better about certain foreign policy things. At least you know, since Trump, who at least expresses skepticism of some military interventions, entered the White House and became Fox's guy. They Fox has at least periodically. Uh, had a kind of interesting perspective on foreign policy. But by and large, I would say CNN, MSNBC, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, I, I don't, I, I, I find them all to be, uh, kind of spokespeople for the blob by and large in terms of their, their, their coverage of foreign policy. Do you, do you disagree? No, I don't disagree. Uh, but I, I, I make a few, um, distinctions. Uh, th- there are spokespeople for the blob, the foreign policy blob, the same way that there are spokespeople for the economic policy blob. There, there are spoke, there are spokespeople for the establishment. It's high broaderism. I mean, I, I wasn't a Bernie supporter. I, I was, uh, I loved Elizabeth Warren. I never thought she could be elected, so I, I basically supported whoever I thought could be, and that was Biden. But I, I, I admire Bernie, even though um, I have my problems with his campaign. But, you know, Bernie uh, is a very popular politician. There, no, there were no pundits in the Times or the Post that represented that point of view. He, he, he's, he, he represents 20 to 30 percent of the country, and he got nothing. Um, and, and his foreign policy view is, is uh, a much more sophisticated presentation and moral presentation of the kind of thing you're talking about with Trump. Um, so, uh, and that's true of economic policy as well. I mean, Harold Meyerson used to talk like Bernie on economic policy, and he was fired by the Washington Post just before the campaign began. Um, so they represent the establishment. They represent, that's where the old world still exists in, uh, in foreign policy and in high economic policy. Now, in terms of television coverage of foreign policy, you used to get it entirely through a Cold War prison. Like, the only way uh, a correspondent could get on TV if something happened somewhere was to say it had some implications for the battle between the United States and Russia, maybe Israel and Palestine, but, but usually uh, the United States and Russia, or it might be some ethnic group, but it was never for its own sake. Foreign policy is not something, it, it's considered death for ratings and, and American people's interests. I wrote a book about democracy and foreign policy. It was my second book. Uh, nobody knows about it. It didn't sell at all. Uh, What's the title? It's called Who Speaks for America? Why Democracy Matters in Foreign Policy. 
I spent a long time on it. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, most Americans are willing to defer on foreign policy to uh, to the experts, to the to the establishment. They think it's okay. Uh, they don't expect to understand it. They, they, they like the Walter Lippmann view on foreign policy. Donald Trump, he doesn't talk about foreign policy. He just talks about who's screwing us, right? So the Chinese people are screwing us. And other countries are screwing us because we're sending our soldiers to war and they are not. But the idea that his foreign policy has any coherence at all, nobody argues that. I mean, we pulled, we're fighting ISIS on the one hand, but we withdrew our soldiers so that ISIS could overrun the the area where the uh, Kurds were being protected. Um, it's indefensible. I mean, the two are obviously, first of all, ISIS is terrible. Second of all, it's completely at cross purposes. But Trump's whole shtick is to just find people to blame and, uh, and, and reach into the values that trigger that. Um, so, uh, I don't know. Maybe you can, maybe you think there's some sophisticated analysis going on on Fox. Yes, Tucker Carlson is much. Less. It's not sophisticated. It's just, it's just sometimes a welcome departure, uh, from what you get. Um, yeah. Peter Beinart early in the Trump, uh, Era wrote a column praising Tucker Carlson for his for his breaking away from blob thinking, um, and but that really hasn't materialized. I tell you, I I, I don't like the blob. I, I I've been a you and I share most of our fallen Carlson views, leaving aside uh, you go a little too far in Israel. But um, oh, I want to hear about wait, that. We're not there yet. But anyway, but I tell you. A very important opportunity was lost when Barack Obama named Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. Because before, during the campaign, I don't know if you know this, before the campaign, Richard Holbrook was calling, he, he expected to be Hillary's Secretary of State. And he was calling up everybody who had ever worked in foreign policy saying, if you advise Obama, you will not get hired in, in the Hillary, um, in the Hillary presidency. Wait, he was and, saying, this was when he was still in the, in the, Oh, oh, and Hillary presidency. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the people who went, who gravitated towards Obama were the people who were brave thinkers who did not want to be part of the blob. Uh, Samantha Power being one. Uh, a friend of mine, Sarah Sewell, who worked with Samantha at the time. Um, and and other thoughtful people who wanted to think new things. Um, so this like is 2008, friend. just to situation yeah. this. This is 2008. 2008. Okay. Um, and, and then Obama screwed all these people by naming Hillary Clinton uh, Secretary of State and letting her bring in the people that uh, had had supported her rather than Obama. Mm-hmm. And those people were, were addicted to the same foreign policy that we've had uh, really since the Cold War. They just transferred the word. And some of them are, are going to be with us in a Biden administration like Jake Sullivan. But go ahead. Yeah, I don't know Jake very well. Actually, I, I, I've been friends with Tony Blinken for a long time, um, and he's a great guy. But I, I don't know, uh, I don't know that much about his views deep down. Anyway, so uh, so Barack Obama, who who you know those interviews he gave like to Jeffrey Goldberg at the end of his presidency, where he talked about how he didn't like the blob, and that's why he did you know he he managed not to go to war in, in Libya and so forth. Uh, he had these views, but. He, you know, he picked his battles very carefully, and that wasn't a battle he was willing to fight. He would much rather have Hillary and, and the establishment on his side, so he gave away that battle, and, and we lost the chance 
to rethink our foreign policy at that moment. Okay. I, I, but, um, before we lose sight of this, I definitely have to hear how I've gone too far in Israel. I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. I, no, I've definitely I'm, gone farther than most, but, you know, that's... I don't know. You'd have to tell me specifically what you think. I just think the fact that you take Max Blumenthal seriously is anyone who takes him seriously is ridiculous and, 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 and incredibly problematic. And you seem to. So I have him on my show. I have you on my show. I had Bill Crystal on my show. I can't, it can't be the case that I agree with all of these people about everything, obviously. No, no, but, but Bob, you are a gatekeeper. Well, and, well, uh, there are two different questions. I, I mean, are you saying that I ag- I must agree with Max about everything, or that no, I'm uh, saying his views do not deserve to be heard? Oh, well, that's a different matter. So, so yeah. you mean, so you mean, just to be clear, you're not saying I go too far in my own views. You're saying I let people on my show who you think go are beyond the pale. That's well, a I'm, different no, thing. I'm drawing a, I'm drawing an inference. From the fact that, that my views couldn't views. be terribly far from theirs if, if I yeah. let them on my show. But that's that's a logical impossibility. I've had a number of Trump supporters. I've had David Frum and Bill Crystal. I've had Max. I've had you. There's just no unifying theme here, but except I'm, except that I'm, I'm willing to hear different person. viewpoints. Well, Bob, when I wrote a uh, the nation, this is a very uh, I don't I don't know that I want to go too deeply into this, but uh, the nation asked me to review. Blumenthal's book, Goliath, as a favor to them, because uh, they didn't really want to take full responsibility for having published it. They wanted to be able to say, look, we published both sides. This is not The Nation magazine. This was The Nation Institute that no longer exists. And I did it so as they a had favor. So they had a book imprint and they were the publisher of his book on Israel? Yeah, The Nation Institute. Which I haven't read, by the way. And, and he never came on the show and talked about that. He's come on the show and talked about it. Oh, well, books, but go within, ahead. Within, before I even knew that the piece had been published, I got an email from you saying, will you come on the show and debate Max Blumenthal? And it is the worst book I've ever read cover to cover in my entire life. Would have been great. He was up for it. Bar none. Well, yes, but I didn't, I don't, I didn't, I, in my role as a gatekeeper to the degree that I have one, which is very small, I didn't, I wanted to play no role any more than I had done as a favor to the Nation Institute and the Nation Magazine. Um, in publicizing that book. And the fact that I said no became this enormous issue with Andrew Sullivan and Glenn Greenwald and, and all these morons, uh, well, morons not the right word, but all these, all these people posing, uh, and saying that I was afraid or that I was, you know, anti-democratic or that I hated black people or whatever it was. A lot of accusations. Were I doubt it was black people, but go well, ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm exaggerating. No, I was a white supremacist. That, that was. Wait, that. come on. I don't remember this. Did well, I? You, you had no reason to pay attention. Yeah. It was my life. Oh, and, and, um, Philip Weiss was also big into this campaign. And, uh, I just was saying this book is total crap. These views ought to be ignored. The nation shouldn't have published it. Uh, and someone else can publish it. I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not advocating censorship, but, you know, we all make choices about what we want to be associated with. And, uh, and anyway, so, um, so, yeah, so so I was drawing my conclusion from that moment where you asked me, and I said, all I said was no. Like, all I said, the entire response was no. And this became an enormous problem in my life where I had to respond over and over. I called the book the, um, I said the book would be the, the, the choice, the, the, the primary choice of the Hamas Book of the Month Club, if they had a Book of the Month Club. Yeah, but Max wouldn't be offended by that, would he? 
<laughs> no, he was. Anyway, it's caught, the point was was that it blew up into this enormously stupid argument. You know, I, I'm I was as critical of the Israeli government more frequently than anyone. I, no one has written more articles about the role that the punditocracy played in 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 lying on behalf of the Israel government than I had at that point. But um, the extremism and the 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 um, the mindless belligerence of that position, which Andrew Sullivan has, by the way, Andrew Sullivan attacked me from both positions. He used to have the right wing position and then he attacked me from the left wing position um, without ever stopping in the middle. Uh, the, that's an example of how gatekeeping used to play a useful role. Now, again, it, it wasn't necessarily a good role. In all matters, is, I'm writing a book about this, by the way, now. I'm writing this book about the debate over Israel-Palestine. And it was a very narrow debate for a long time. And now it's, in many ways, a healthier debate. But in terms of media, it's not. Because in terms of media, it's the most extreme voices that are the ones that are hurt. And because uh, and, and, uh, they make the most noise. They get the most attention. And, um, and so it's impossible to have a discussion that that demands nuance like you have. I mean, I, I don't want to suck up to you because <laughs> don't worry. I'm balanced. You're not in danger of doing that over the last five right, minutes. But, but, but I do, but, but you do provide a forum to discuss things in some detail with some nuance. Uh, and that's there. There are not many like that anywhere. So that's one reason we don't have a good foreign policy discussion. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, so what would you say your position is on cancel culture? Because one one reason I like to have uh, people like Max on is because, like, when I see them, um, like, like you know, his view on Syria has a, a non-trivial amount of overlap with mine. Like, I think the proxy intervention was, was bad and it grew out of this kind of partly out of this Monachian view of the world and so on. <clears throat> now, he, he is uh, – he – probably differs from me in a number of ways on Syria, and he certainly expresses his views with less in the way of diplomatic modulation than I do. But but what I, what I want to say is there are people who want to expel him from that conversation by calling him an Assad sympathizer or an Assad this or an Assad that. And I just don't like that. I, I just think, you know, because look, let's move it back to Israel. You yourself, I'm sure, have seen people whose views you think did belong in the debate be stigmatized by people on the right as anti-Semitic when, in fact, probably in your view they weren't, or at least there well, wasn't well, enough evidence well, to call I, them. I have right? been stigmatized as such. Okay, so you understand the peril, and 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 that is what I like to fight against. So when I see somebody, uh, people systematically trying to remove somebody from a debate by calling them names, I I, I take a look, and if I don't think the names are deserved. Uh, or, 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 or if I don't think the, the, the name should be enough to expel them from the debate, and I think the debate needs diverse participation, I'm inclined to want to have them on my platform. I mean, it, it's. Bob, Bob, those are all, those are all laudable goals. Uh, and I support you in them, but they, <laughs> they don't apply to everyone. So, Apparently. so, so, so we, you know, on some issues, we have different standards. I had no problem with you having, Bill Crystal on the show. I watched the whole show. I would have asked him somewhat different questions, but you, you were pretty good. You, I mean, in terms of pushing him uh, and very, very skillful, very polite. 
um, uh, he's a nice guy, so uh, that that makes it easier. Um, but uh, look, I I spent the first half. I mean, I've been doing this now for like twenty five, thirty years, depending on how you look at it. Um, I spent most of my life being attacked by the pro Israel right, and and having people call me a self hating Jew and saying that uh, you know terrible things about me. And then I, I discovered the BDS movement. And and I didn't like it at all because I support academic freedom. And I think it's contrary to uh, the... You think BDS uh, is itself contrary to academic freedom? But this is the, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. Yes, uh, as it functions in academia, it is. The, the how, academic. How does, that, how does that work? Well, uh, BDS says that no one who is affiliated with an Israeli university should be invited to participate in a discourse if the universe, if they are representing that university. Um, it goes further than that. Like there's a professor in Michigan who refused to write a recommendation for a kid who was applying to an Israeli university. But, but that's the position. And is that an official intrinsic part of BDS per se? The first or? part is, yes. So that, and now if you're an academic, if you want to go to a conference, you're going to be supported by your university. No, Hardly any professor makes enough money to fly himself across the world to speak at a conference. That's how conferences work. You get the money from your university, you travel. So those people are all barred by BDS to the degree that BDS has any power. And and universities are really the only place it does. It's a complete failure in terms of economics, and it's a complete failure in terms of politics. It's it's actually a net negative for politics from the standpoint of helping the Palestinians. Um, but it has had some success on university campuses. Um, so I actually was part of a group of academics who founded an organization called the Third Narrative that supported, um, we supported the BDS people's right to argue against free speech. They have that right, but we opposed what they were saying. And we insisted that people, uh, affiliated with Israel University should be allowed to be heard and there should be a free and open debate because that's what universities are for. So on principle, I think it's terrible. It's also terrible in its effect because, um, number one, the people that it's boycotting, the, the scholars and the cultural crowd in Israel, are the people who care about peace. That's where the support for a Palestinian state exists. It's smaller and smaller every day. And it's a shame, but it's it's the very people who are trying to make the case on behalf of the rights of the Palestinians, uh, political and cultural and so forth, who are being shut down. So it's counterproductive in that regard. And 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 then the third the third problem with it, and this is why, like even the Prime Minister uh, of, of the Palestinian Authority doesn't support it. It doesn't do anything for the Palestinians. Palestinians are living in terrible conditions in refugee camps. Um, in, in, and in the Palestinian diaspora and, and things are getting worse for them every day. And, and meanwhile, the BDS people, they're paying all their, all their attention to marches and, and, and conferences and, and colleges and food co-ops and so forth. And, 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 and they're ignoring the, they're ignoring the actual people they're supposed to be helping. They're just having a good time. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating. And, uh, but, um, you know, I've been writing this book uh, for years now about the debate over Israel-Palestine, and everything has gotten worse for the Palestinians uh, on a kind of steady basis. Um, 
for a very long time. Uh, and, and yet they're not, they're not willing to rethink what they're doing. I mean, yes, Israel is. Oh, largely I think they're rethinking it. I, I think the younger Palestinians do not accept a premise that older Palestinians accept, which is that a two-state solution is is possible, and and they want a one-state solution. That's my take. I think there's there's more support for uh, a one-state solution among younger Palestinians and older. And, oh, and that's where we're and that's where we're headed. The, the you know, it's, I think it's too late for a two-state solution. The question is whether it's going to be one state apartheid state. Or something else, but or or ethnic cleansing followed by one state or or, or something else. Well, do you, uh, want to, do you want to delve into this? I'm happy to do it, but it's not what we're. Uh, here to I talk don't about. think it's what we're here to talk about. That's just just my take. I think it's too. No sense arguing no, whether it's everyone, too late. Look, for two it would state. be wonderful. It would be wonderful to have one democratic state where Jews and, and Arabs lived happily ever after. But uh, from that would the, be nice. From the uh, um. You know what's the slogan from from the Jordan the, to the from the something yeah, to, to the, the sea from whatever to the sea. Uh, that's yeah. not going to happen. I mean, that's just, there's just no way. There's no theory behind which the but, Israelis agree to give up their country. But do you think um, two states is still possible? You think a two state solution no, is still possible? No, I well, think okay, then, I think then, we're going to get. A, I think we're getting apartheid. Okay. Yeah. I think we're getting apartheid, and there's nothing to be done about it. Okay, uh, but did you support the boycott uh, sanctions movement against South Africa, which was a, an apartheid state? Bob, I would. Let me be clear, because this is often missed. Um, as a, as a as a scholar and an intellectual and a professor, I don't support anything that shuts down free speech. So, in academic, in the academic life, I think BDS is terrible. If I thought that boycotting Israel economically would lead to the end of the occupation and a two-state solution. I would support it. I would support anything that ended the occupation. I care about Israel a lot, and it's destroying itself. It's given itself cancer with this occupation, and it's destroying its democracy, and it's, 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 a, it's an incredibly painful phenomenon for me as someone who first went to Israel when he was 14, again, when he was 16, spent a semester when he was 20, who's deeply connected to it as friends and family and support. Um, but it's not. It's counterproductive. It's allowing, all it's done is, is, is allowed Israel, the right wing in Israel, to get stronger and stronger, and the right wing in the United States that supports Israel to get stronger and stronger. So that's why I don't support it. Now, the South African boycott worked, and that's why, if you talk to BDS people, they never get asked this. They say, how is it going to work? How are you going to get Israel to agree to stop being Israel. And they say, well, look at South Africa. That's all they can say. There's no theory as to how BDS becomes, uh, leads to a one state in Israel. And so far, it's done the exact opposite. Now, I used to say, back when I had more faith in a two-state solution, the only way that there can be two states is if the Palestinians somehow convince the Israelis that they won't be a threat to them. And then the Israelis would say, okay, you can have a state. Because... Israel holds the power. Some people say, well, the United States could force Israel to allow a state if the United States got tough on Israel. Number one, I can't imagine that happening. The United States ever getting that tough on Israel. And number two, I don't even think that would work. Either. So literally the only way would be for Israel to say, okay, things will be better if the Palestinians have their own state. We won't have to worry about wars. We won't have to all serve the military. You know, everything will be nicer. But the, that has no one, that hasn't happened. And now everything's moving in the wrong direction. So I, I am 100% pessimistic about there being a, 
a two-state solution. That doesn't mean things can't get a lot worse uh, for the Palestinians. And they have been getting a lot worse. And BDS has either wasted a lot of people's time and effort and, and helped to destroy free speech on campus and, and, and promoted cancel culture, which we can talk about in a minute if you want, or it's done, or it's done nothing at all. But it certainly hasn't helped the Palestinians. So that's my critique. Okay, uh, so I, I agree we shouldn't spend the whole time talking about Israel. So let, but, but let's back out of it by just my clarifying a couple of things. Well, one thing is to add something BDS supporters would say is that they have their own free speech issue, which is a, a state, a, a lot of American states have passed laws, uh, saying that like if you don't swear that you oppose BDS or if you, or if you, you know, if you don't swear that you'll never support it or something, you can't do business with with the state government as a contractor. There's various free speech issues on that side of it that they would get right, into. Right, that's that, what I mean. That's what I mean yeah. by it's made everything worse. Yeah. The the um but the other thing is so just to be clear, uh A, your 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 issue with BDS is about the academic manifestation of it, which which I'm not really up on, but uh not and not so much an in principle opposition to using any kind of boycott to put pressure on no, Israel. No, it, it so happens that Historically, because of the experience of Jews throughout history, particularly with the Nazis, boycotting them is revives a lot of bad memories, you know, uh, collective memories, and it makes them feel persecuted. And Israel already is run neurotically seeing Nazis in the Palestinian, talking about uh, Hitler in his bunker when it was Arafat, you know, they were talking about. So it's a, it's a net negative there. But yes, to clarify, I'm in principle against BDS on campus, even though I have fought for the right of pro-BDS speakers to speak on campus where I teach at Brooklyn okay. College. Um, but I'm against BDS uh, in the world because it's counterproductive, not, okay. not in principle, just because it doesn't work. Okay. So, um, like, back to media. Yeah. Um, y- you... Uh... What about the balkanization part? I mean, you, you, you focus more on what you see as a kind of a right wing dominance almost of media. And, and, and by the way, I think another set of counterexamples somebody might throw at you would be Washington Post, New York Times. Uh, even if you leave out the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal, the repertorial section of the Wall Street Journal is, you know, online with that of the, Roughly speaking, New York Times, Washington Post. In a way, I like it a little better. Uh, but, but, um, but certainly, both the journalistic, the repertorial, and the opinion sides of of of, of the two of the three dominant newspapers, Washington Post, New York Times, I, I don't think can be characterized as conservative in any, anything like the way that Fox News can, right? And and Fox and and you know the average Trump supporter would say they're the enemy. And, and this, one is, of my th- this is the genius of the conservative side of things. You're saying they can't be characterized as conservative. And your, your definition of conservative is Fox News, which is nonsense. It's filled with lies and crazy people. And, and, and look, look at the, look at the subway that goes back and forth between the Trump administration, which is built 100% on lies and Fox News. It's the same people in both jobs. At one point, they had, one guy, uh, shine getting paid by both people at the very same time, the White House and Fox News. Um, so, so that's their great victory that they have moved the 50 yard line so far that you're saying, Oh, they're not as conservative as Fox News. If this began with Ronald Reagan, 
Okay, before Ronald Reagan, we used to have two relatively centrist political parties, and and we knew we knew what liberals were going to say, we knew what conservatives were going to say, and they could talk to each other. But beginning with Reagan, who started making stuff up and living in a fantasy world, and then that was weaponized much more purposely by Newt Gingrich. Um, my friend uh, Julian Zelser has written a book about that. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, I then, think I'm in it. Wait. Um, well, he wrote a, he wrote a book about. Did he write a book about Jim Wright or or no, um, he wrote a book about Gingrich and Jim Wright. It's and mostly Jim Wright. about Gingrich. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Wright is I, in the Gingrich. I, I figure. I figure in in this book. Okay. For but better anyway. or worse. <laughs> anyway, um, so so by moving, this is what my uh, last column uh, is to some degree about. They have purchased the whole playing field, so that now we define. Uh, what used to be conservative views as liberal and centrist views are somewhere between uh, Fox and, and, uh, and CNN. CNN, again, with all these crazy people who are lying on and, and knowingly lying is considered centrist. So I would say with Donald Trump as president, and you're saying there the, the times and the post are part of the resistance. Well, truth is part of the resistance. He's, he's, he's told, 25,000 or more falsehoods since he became president. He's a crazy person. He belongs in, in a prison psych ward. Falsehoods I'm fine with. It's, it's the word lying I don't like in repertorial coverage. If they well, called them falsehoods, I'd be a little less well, critical they do. of, they of do. their... If, no, if they say lying. They say, they say he lied. And, and they say, and for example, they say in, 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 uh, on the election fraud claims, they say false claims of election fraud. They don't know if there's faults. They, there could be a fraud. The appropriate term, and it's not baseless, the appropriate repertorial term is unsubstantiated. That's what you can say for sure. They haven't shown us the evidence, but they don't stop there. Bob, they editorialize in every piece. Bob, I'm not Eric Alterman. I'm a pod person from that great movie. Um, which movie is that? The movie about the pod people? <laughs> I don't know. It's a great movie. It's, it's I bet remade. there's been more than one. It's not Night of the Living Dead. No, I wish I could remember right now. Anyway, I'm a pod person, uh-huh. and I'm not Eric Alterman. My body has been replaced. That's an unsubstantiated I, claim, Eric. That's my point. No, but at if you're a reporter, point, that's all point, you should say. Against unsubstantiated claims that's, and say this is nonsense. Whether you call it a lie or not. No, but there's a difference. There's a difference, Eric. Election fraud has happened on this planet. It's happened in this country. It can happen. And there's well, no way to can happen, Bob. That's my point. Anything no, you could happen. not be a pod person as a practical matter. That's different. <laughs> Bob, no, no. The, the, the job, this is a, I've always been very critical of objective reporting and I well, have the clearly. exact opposite. I have the exact opposite view of this and of lies. I think the job of journalism is to tell the truth as best as the person writing or speaking can discern it. And they should be respectful. They should be fair and balanced to decide they disagree with. But they should say, President Trump said this. Somebody else said this. Not you make up your mind. Not it's up to you, viewer or reader. It's here's why this is right and that's wrong. Okay, but do you, here's why what Trump is saying is false. Okay, that's your view. Twenty-five thousand times. That's your view of what journalism should be. Do you yeah. at least agree? That 25 years ago, that was emphatically not the model followed by the Washington Post and the New York Times. Today, it more often is the model. Do you agree that there has been this change? 
I agree there has not been nearly enough of that. Okay, but there has been change. I'm not there imagining. There has been change, absolutely. And I think, it's, I think it's I bad. I Times. think it plays into Trump's hands. I think it's one reason that that Trump can just say lying media and people believe him. I'm not saying that if they had conduct if, if the Times and Post had conducted themselves differently, those claims of his would have no traction. It may be that that the most you could hope for is to reduce their traction by three percent or one percent. I don't know. I just think, and uh, you know, no way of knowing who's right here. I just think it's made things worse. Well, again, I, I I feel strongly that the job of the press, not the media, but the press, is to figure out what's true and to report it. And if you report lies without saying that they're lies, then you're reporting misinformation. There are ways to convey that it's misinformation without making that judgment yourself. You can uh, point to contrary evidence. You can cite contrary evidence. I want, I want, I want people to make that judgment. I want that judgment made. I believe in that judgment. Well, I think false claims of electoral fraud is a perfect example of where um, the judgment, although, you know, I, 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 I don't buy the claims that have been made by the other side. And I'm very in touch with them. I pay a lot. I, I know a lot about what they're saying in the, in the, in the, you know, the, the, the darkest recesses of the right now about the, the fraud stuff, because I paid a lot of attention and I don't buy it. But I know for a fact that I don't know for sure that there was no election fraud. And I'm not going to assert that something is false unless I know that it's false for sure. And and none of these reporters at the Times and the Post know for sure that they're false. And it's just a disservice to the journalistic profession to start going around saying things that they don't know are true. It just in the, in the long run undermines the enterprise, in my view. Well, you're, I mean, I could fight with you about this all day. I think the opposite. I think they should do their best to figure out what's true and report that as here's what I understand to be the truth. And, you know, when I, when I, again, when I wrote Sound and Fury and I talked a lot about the difference with the, the, what I thought was then and still think to some degree is an artificial distinction between opinion and fact. I much admired the European model uh, of newspapers like, uh, the Guardian in those days, and uh, and uh, Liberation, to a lesser degree, Le Monde. One of the best newspapers in the world, I think, is Haaretz in Israel, because Good. they tell you what they think is true. They don't say conservatives say this and liberals say this and whatever. I'm not even sure either one is true, but you decide. They say, here's the truth. If you don't like my newspaper, go read a right-wing newspaper. Fine. But here's here's what you need to know to understand the world. And there's a lot of stuff there. You know, when I used to go, uh, I used to travel a lot when I was younger, in my twenties, and um, I would I would have uh, a drink with the uh, correspondent from the Times or Newsweek or Time Post in some foreign country, and I would say, "Why did you report that crap you reported about this in Nicaragua or El Salvador or Berlin?" They say, "I didn't report that. I reported this back in New York or Washington." They turned into this because they felt like we had to have both sides. They knew what was true, but the readers didn't get it because the political system demanded this uh, this agnosticism that you like so much. On, uh, on, on, on. I don't. I don't know that my approach would have precluded them from reporting anything that you wanted re- reported. What did you want reported? I, I think that, I that wanted would fall them to take a my... position. I wanted 
take a position. I, I, I you know, I, I remember talking to Stephen Kinzer in Managua, and I said, "Really, you think that Sandinista anti-Semitism is a big problem?" Let's go with New York. They think it's a big problem. I don't think it's even worth talking about. But you know, I think he's, my he's actually New York. was one of the better foreign correspondents. I think. Yeah, I right? know he was, but still, he reported a lot of crap that the Reagan administration was able to use to to further their, you know, illegal crazy war. Which, by the way, could lead us to talking about Elliot Abrams. Um, that, that he knew was nonsense. Huh? Happy to talk about Elliot Abrams. Yeah, we should I, set I the talk- stage for our younger viewers. Uh, he was vo- involved in what? Well, he was involved in. Well, first of all, he got in, uh, indicted for lying to Congress. Was that over Iran Contra that he lied? What did he lie yes. to? Con- he, you know, he's in, he's a kind of a neocon. He was in the Reagan administration. He, uh, I guess, was involved in Iran Contra. Lied about it to Congress. I think got off without having a felony record, technically. But anyway, that's a well, little about pardoned. him. He was pardoned by uh, George H. W. Bush. Although he okay. was disbarred, and he was found guilty. Now, what else would but, you like um, to say? Well, a lot, actually. He's very important symbolically to me. First of all, he's also Norman Podhartz's son-in-law. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I, I wrote my first article about Elliot Abrams when he was assistant. First, he was assistant secretary of human rights, and then Latin America under the Reagan administration. And he hmm. was the point man for the Contra War. George Shultz, the secretary of state, sort of gave... Uh, Central America to the right wing so that they would leave him alone on things he thought was more important. And Abrams was was more important. So yes, he lied about Central America and got caught in the Iran-Contra scandal. He was raising money for the Contras from the Sultan of Brunei. But here's why I think he's important symbolically. The government of Guatemala carried out what the Guatemalan, UN Guatemalan run Tooth Commission has called genocide inside of Guatemala against the Mayan Indians. Um, that uh, that the genocidal leaders were armed by the United States. There were Congress had passed laws uh, limiting those arms. But Elliot Abrams, in addition to fighting for the murderers and death squads in El Salvador and uh, in Nicaragua. He, he attacked everyone who, all human rights people, who tried to prevent the arming of these uh, murder genocide committers in Guatemala at the time. He called them communists and all kinds of names, and he defended them. Reagan did too, but, but it, was, it was Abrams' policy. Now, we now know that officially that country has named this policy as genocide, and we know that Elliot Abrams defended that policy and enabled the United States to help the committing of genocide in that period. So you would think that someone who enabled genocide, uh, and and that's why I picked this example, because it's documented. No one would argue that it didn't happen. Would be, with their reputation, would suffer to some degree. That they would be considered someone that you wouldn't want to have over for dinner or let's say make a senior fellow at your council on foreign relations yep. or use as an example. Um, when, uh, when, when uh, Trump came to power, um, his secretary of state, what was the name of that guy? Tillerson? Uh, Rex Tillerson. Yeah. Yeah. He, he wanted to make Elliot Abrams his number two person at the state department, oh, the God. job that Tony Blinken had uh, under Obama when the administration ended. Um, 
And, and he was prevented from doing so. And if you look at the New York Times and Washington Post coverage of that moment, they're all like, well, he's a, he's a, a centrist, straightforward Republican establishment figure. Now, this centrist, straightforward Republican establishment figure, who was not crazy enough for Trump, that was his problem at the time. He then, Trump then appointed him to a series of jobs to overthrow the Venezuelan government most recently. But um, this establishment figure, this person we define as a responsible Republican at the time, was someone who had engendered genocide, lied to Congress, um, and been disbarred for his actions by the bar of D.C. That's the best they can do. That's how disgraced and, de- and, and debased the Republican Party had become in foreign policy. The same people that were supporting apartheid. In but South it Africa. isn't just the Republican Party, as you suggest. It is the foreign policy establishment. I mean, the yes. Council on Foreign Relations is fundamentally bipartisan. It is the blob. It is the foreign policy establishment. And I have often used this very example in asking people, like, why, like, Elliot Abrams, like, CFR could could bless any number of people with its imprimatur. And again, Elliot Abrams wasn't just a member of CFR. He's an actual fellow. There's a finite number of those. It's a, it's yes. like a precious resource, you know? Yes. They can only put their blessing on so many people. It's like, it's like, shouldn't just the single fact that he lied to Congress be enough for you to say, well, why don't we get somebody else? And, and I genuinely do not understand the dynamics. I mean, is it that somebody comes to CFR with a lot of money and says, well, we'll endow this chair, but we want Elliot Abrams to sit in it? What, what, how does this happen? Well, that is, that is a fundamental difference between think tanks and academia. You can do that with think tanks. You can't do it with academia. I don't know. I have argued with the head of CFR about Elliot Abrams and he, was rather reluctant to defend it. And in fact, when Chuck Hagel was this put is, up uh, as sec- Richard, Richard Haas, you mean? You've argued with Richard Haas about it? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Um, and when, um, no, no, I argued with his predecessor. Um, Leslie Gelb? No, be- between Haas and Gelb. The guy who was also editor of the Daily News. Handsome fellow. Blonde Handsome. Hair. Had the job for a long time. Did he? Oh, 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 no, he had been... No, I'm thinking of the head of Foreign Affairs magazine. Never mind. Um, I anyway, don't know. Beats me. But, oh, but listen. Oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> listen, it doesn't matter. Um, but when when Elliot Abrams called Chuck Hagel an anti-Semite for having views uh, that he didn't like about Israel, the, the council said, oh, well, we don't agree with that. Like they distanced themselves from his most extreme views in that case, but never from the fact that I hired someone who engendered genocide. Yes, you're right. The the foreign policy establishment, I would bring this back to the takeover of the Republican foreign policy by the neocons. The neocons didn't care in the slightest bit about human rights. They didn't care that in El Salvador we were supporting death squads. They didn't care, uh, you know, about anything but winning the Cold War. And then once the Cold War became the global war against terror, they didn't care about anything but uh, winning that. And, and they didn't care about human beings. They didn't care about people. This was all collateral damage. Now, you could go back further. Henry Kissinger didn't care about the millions of people that were killed as a result of the Vietnam War. He, and, and I spent a lot of time in, on this in my book or in Chile or in, in, uh, where else was Kissinger doing terrible things? Uh, in India, Pakistan. Um, so, so yeah. So the United States foreign policy 
beginning with the Cold War and through the global war on terror, has been infected by uh, this need to show victory and has shown contempt for both democracy and human rights. And I think Barack Obama wanted to challenge that and blew that opportunity. And and this is this is where I have the least faith that Joe Biden will save us. Quote I just wrote that piece. Well, not exactly that piece, but uh, a, a piece in the Washington Post uh, that'll also uh, the director's cut version will be my the non-zero newsletter. But 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 it was it was about the fact that Biden. It's basically the Obama team recycled, or some of the younger people in Obama's team being uh, you know promoted. Tony Bleak and Jake Sullivan, and, and looking forward to what that will be. I mean. Um, what is your argument that, that Biden is going to be uh, – uh, elaborate on what you were going to say. Oh, what I was going to say was, look, I would have I would have supported anyone over who could be Trump. Yeah. It was a luxury. Too. Like I, I think Biden was the worst of the candidates with regard to Israel, the major candidates. I, I much liked – I really liked the fact that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both said we are going to condition aid on – Israel taking steps towards peace. I thought that was wonderful. Um, my friend Matt Duss is the single person I would love to see directing mm-hmm. foreign policy uh, of anyone I can think of. Um, but Biden was just, Biden said, when, when they both said that, he goes, that's crazy. We could never do that, no matter what. I mean, Biden does have the same basic views of foreign policy as Obama did, but he's also a much more old-fashioned politician. Obama's problem with the Middle East is that he just wouldn't stand up to 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 Netanyahu and to the um to not so much to the blob. With Israel, it's not so much the blob, it's the Christian conservatives and the neocon. Um, yeah, but it's pretty it's pretty the blob is pretty friendly in, in the end. No, they to are, those, but, to but, those but the degree the degree of abuse one one engenders if you oppose them comes from the neocons. And the yeah. political support of the Republican Party is driven by the Christian conservatives, not by the blob and not by the Jews. Most Jews are 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 uh, support um, forcing Israel to to be nicer. Not most, but at least half. At least half. Um, and but most are they, Jews. Are, but are they the most influential ones? Or are they the younger ones who will be influential in in twenty years? Well, I don't know that they'll ever be influential because um, money. Well, not talks now. About- the what? the um I, I think Obama um wanted to fight more on Israel than Biden would, and he showed flashes of that. His you know his parting shot was to not veto uh, a UN uh, Security Council resolution that Israel very much wanted vetoed, and even to get the Iran deal through, he had to fight tooth and nail. That so he, only, he showed he showed some fight. spunk. Yeah, I know that, that was, was the, the that was the good made. fight. That was the good fight. Yeah. But I'm, I was actually writing about this. I stopped writing so that we could have this conversation. I was writing the Israel-Palestine part about the beginning of the Obama trip. Obama, you know, Obama gave this interview at this synagogue uh, a couple of years ago where he said, I'm basically a liberal Zionist. And he's right. He is. He was a liberal Zionist. He lived across the street from one of the most important founders of American liberal Zionism, Rabbi Arnold Jacob Wolk. His synagogue was across the street from where Obama lived. And Obama talks about Israel like a liberal Zionist and like a liberal Zionist. And I include myself in this. He's a loser when it comes to fighting the Israelis and the American right wing. He just, he rolled over and, and died with the exception of the Iran agreement. Um, and, and that's why Netanyahu could treat him with contempt and get away with it because he had the support of the entire Republican party 
and of the part of the Jewish establishment that runs these organizations. Um, there are, you're right, there are younger organizations and a lot of people involved in fighting this fight and, and they're good people and I wish them well. But uh, after studying this debate for the past 70 years, I, I, I don't have a lot of faith in it. No, I actually came back, you know, you mentioned Matt Duss. Uh, I went to Israel in 2010, I think, on a, on a trip he organized. So it was like a, it was like the opposite of the APAC tour of Israel. It's like you, yeah. you, know, you go to the West Bank, you go to Hebron, you talk. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I mean, we talked to like uh, the head of the settler movement. I mean, we talked to all sides, yeah. but there was definitely a, a pretty deep immersion in the perspective of the Palestinians. Um, and, uh, you know, I came back then. It, it's very weird. I found myself on the way back, like, well, I changed planes in, in like New York or something. And because I was on a very small plane that didn't have like a first class versus coach thing, I found myself sitting next to John, John Kerry. And I told, mm-hmm. and I, I told him it's too late for two state solution. He didn't want to hear that, uh, as we later found out, but that, I, I concluded that even then. So I've been, I've been pessimistic for a long time. Um, and it's, and it, it's depressing. It, it's, it's, uh, and I, I honestly don't know where it's going to go. I mean, it's like, I don't know, but it doesn't seem to me like a good place. Um, so we've talked more than on, about Israel than we have planned. We should, and we've been talking a while. We should, uh, talk a little more media before we, uh, call it sure. a day, maybe. Just the, the question, the thing we haven't quite touched on, um, is the famous question of media balkanization and people having echo chambers and and so on. That is said to be a huge shift that happened on your watch. Can so. I, can I, um, I want to combine that with another issue. Okay. And it, it also has to do with the issue you were raising about the times and the post and, and the journal. Um, the media is being hollowed out in a few ways simultaneously. Uh, local coverage disappearing. All the hiring that's getting done is being done in New York and Washington, and maybe some in L.A. or Seattle. But basically, it's entirely coastal. And uh, and people are losing uh, their local news. They're losing their connections to one another. Like in this great Lippmann-Dewey debate, Lippmann said the the purpose of media is to give people information. And Dewey said, no. The purpose of media is to conduct a conversation so that people can figure out what their values are um, and then and then try to ask their government to represent those values because they're never going to understand all these complicated issues. And, um, and now we have all these different balkanized little medias where people share values, but we have no collective conversation where, where the country can uh, discover its values. And, um, and so we don't really have a country anymore. We don't have what Ben, Bennett Anderson called an imagined community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and a big reason for that is that the media, since the internet came into being, I've made a very nice living thanks to the internet, although it's destroyed most journalism, uh, most people's ability to make a living in journalism. But if you can combine a lot of things as I did, uh, in my youth, uh, um, then, uh, there, there were, you, you could, you could work for a lot of different people at the same time. And I did that and, 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 uh, a long time ago. 
and I'm grateful for it. But um, it destroyed the economic model that uh, of newspapers, which do 90% of reporting, and of an awful lot of magazines, most magazines, I think. Um, and so journalists don't get paid anything anymore. Like it used to be, a friend of mine uh, had a column in Time Magazine, and he was uh, then offered a column on Time Inc. They said, your magazine's column's canceled. was offered a column in Time Inc. literally for one-tenth of what he was being paid to write for Time Magazine. So, um, you know, I taught in the journalism department at Brooklyn College for a long time, and I was unpopular in my department because I would tell kids, don't do this. It's not a sustainable way to make a living anymore. Don't think that because you know people who are older who are making a living that you'll be able to do it too. It's disappeared. So now the only people who can do it are the people who are really successful um, and, and, and are kind of their own brands um, or, or people who are supported by uh, these few institutions that are profitable, like the New York Times being the best example. And, um, and the New York Times deserves a lot of credit for its investment in very unprofitable parts of journalism. But it's not enough for the whole country. And, and, and so, and, and when you combine this with cable news, where people are watching Rachel Maddow on the one hand or Sean Hannity on the other, then what's lost is A, a sense of ourselves as a country, and B, the kind of news that people need to understand their communities. It's going to be a great day in America in the future for local criminal behavior on the part of public officials, because nobody's going to be going to the, to the, city council meetings anymore. Nobody's going to be following up on anything. So, um, so the loss of newspapers, uh, in part uh, due to Google and Facebook and YouTube and their advertising, their colonization of the advertising and Craigslist, um, and in part due to just the fact that uh, it's so much cheaper and easier to reach people uh, digitally than it was uh, via print, has had catastrophic effects on both the media and on democracy, and also on the people who, who want to be what you and I were when we were young, who could go into these places, get jobs, make okay money, not, not lawyer money, not investment banker money, but enough money so you could imagine having a family uh, and, and living okay and maybe going on vacation uh, for two, two weeks a year. That, that's all disappearing. So uh, this is the thing that, this is probably the biggest change that I've seen in 25 years. If I could go, if I were, if I were my son, I don't have a son, I have a daughter. Um, if I were my daughter, I would say, don't even think about this as a career. This career is over, um, unless unless you have the means to support yourself from in some other way. And I think that has terrible implications for uh, our democracy. Yeah, and I mean, the there are people who make a living at it. I do think they are asked to produce a lot more content than you used to have to produce in order to make a living. And I think that shows. I mean, I remember when I worked, uh, when I was very young in a newspaper, we had to produce tons of content that was very good for me. Sometimes I'd write three stories a day, you know, go to the board of ed meeting, then go to the zoning board meeting, whatever. Um, that was very good. But then as I advanced in my career, it was like, you know, it might be considered a full-time job, uh, to write a piece a week sometimes or a piece or two a week. I mean, um, and I think that's one thing that's really changed. There's almost nobody, uh, getting paid, 
what we would have considered top dollar to produce uh, journalism. It's 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 uh, it's a little more ha- hamsters on a treadmill, I think. Well, that's the norm. I mean, there are people who do it at the, you know at a few places. The New Yorker certainly. The Times, I even suppose the New Yorker. I don't think they pay what they used to pay. Uh, no, I, I they mean, don't. They don't. The, it's it, you don't get paid very much at the New Yorker. Even the right. stars don't get paid very much, but they get paid. You, know, you can make a living at the New Yorker. You're not. You don't go into journalism for the money. Did you ever see that movie, The Paper? Yeah. Remember when uh, the guy gives the speech about Picasso drawing on the napkin, and he says, <laughs> "That's the theme. We don't get the money." Okay, I knew we didn't get the money when I went into the business. I, I didn't want the money. I, I, I wanted to do it for other reasons. But I, want, I didn't want to be poor. I didn't want to be pathetic. You know, I wanted to be able to go out to dinner on occasion and, and, and uh, pick up the check. Um, so, so, but now that, that is what's disappearing. That middle class life or upper middle class life that was possible for so many journalists up through... Um, the 1980s or early 1990s uh, when the internet took over is gone mm-hmm. um, because, uh, because it just, it, it doesn't make any economic sense. And the only way to support it is, is uh, you know, by, by either playing to the advertisers and corporations or, or having the money yourself. Um, again, the New York times and the Washington, New York times is, Economically healthy under Trump, we'll see if that remains the case. No, it's going to be a challenge for them in the in the post Trump yeah. world. And the Washington Post is owned by the richest man in the world, and um, and that's a problem too. It's a better problem than than the other problem, but it's still a problem. So uh, you know, the only way to save journalism really is through public funding, and a lot of countries do that, and that would be great. But again, we're ideologically unsupported. It has its perils too, if you mean the government. Um... There's also well, the, the diverse philanthropic funding model, which... Well, you know, this was my cause for a long time to try to get foundations mm-hmm. uh, to fund journalism. And most of them don't want to do it. I mean, if you're, if you're an individual, like George Soros can do it and Lauren Powell Jobs can do it. But a foundation like the Carnegie Foundation or Corporation, they can't do it. Or, or the MacArthur Foundation, they can't do it. Because number one, they're very slow moving. But number two, foundations are con- are conflict averse. They don't they don't want to they don't mm-hmm. want to fund anything that's going to cause them to get in trouble. They, the last thing they you know they they want everything to be very safe and respectable, mm-hmm. and and journalism is the opposite. So they're not interested in that. Uh, they like to take their time and get everything you know dot all their i's and t's and put out a report that you know is filled with good ideas but isn't going to happen. Um, so, so journalism, journalism is a lot like, I mean, you know, when Trump was elected, I said, there's two things that are over now. One is our, any hope of saving the planet. And the other one is any hope of a um, Israeli-Palestinian peace. Because things are going to go so badly for so long that they won't be fixable. I don't see journalism as being fixable either. I see it kind of like Israel-Palestine. Everything's going to get worse more slowly. And it's not like there's not worth things that are not worth saving. And there's not like things that you can't be done, but it can't be saved. And, and the results are, are going to be the worst for the people who are most vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little agno- more agnostic on journalism. And, and when I say that, I think the plight of the average journalist 
is worse than it used to be. That's not the same as saying that journalism is less good for the country than it used to be. These are separate questions. Um, the other thing I'd say, because it comes back to what I said near the beginning, um, about how we used to, you used to sit in an office and the only information at your disposal was books and magazines you had uh, physical access to. If, if younger people can't believe what I said about there being a time when you only had to write one piece a week and in certain contexts and that was considered a full-time job, you got to remember the research was a lot more labor intensive for this very reason. You might call eight or 10 people to, uh, you know, to nail down one story. You might, you might actually go to a physical library. So, so, it was different in a lot of ways. I I kind of think the jury's out in terms of the quality of the coverage. Um, at the moment, I'm most concerned about well the the um, the the balkanization, the echo chambers, and even there, I think one of the main culprits is the dynamics of social media, which we haven't haven't had yeah, we time haven't to talk about. about. But but we that has but but that's you know it's been much discussed and it. You know, it incentivizes people to just deepen the tribal divide, it seems to me. I mean, everyone's busy building up their following within their tribe, which means demonizing the other tribe, taking the other tribe out of context and blah, blah, blah. And um, so that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Well, Bob, you have to distinguish between two different things here. You and I and a lot of the people we know are much, much better informed now than we ever would have been without the Internet and social Mm -hmm. media Mm -hmm. because we can – we can dig into things and it's also easy to get no question about it. As a media columnist, I love the internet because everything was immediately available to me. I didn't have to get out of bed even, but in terms of our democracy, in terms of the average knowledge of normal people who aren't like us, who who go to work every day or did before the pandemic and will again, uh, their, their level of knowledge is much worse because again, the, the sources of news that they were, that were economically sustainable are no longer economically sustainable. You know, a newspaper, yeah, I used to teach media history. A newspaper, all it is from an economic standpoint um, is a way to collect eyeballs to sell to advertisers. The New York Times cost a lot more to produce in the olden days than it sold for. And the difference was made up by the advertisers who mm-hmm. were paying to reach New York Times readers. But now advertisers, and, 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 and there was a quote I was quoted that, I forget who said it, but he said, it was an advertiser, he said, I know I'm wasting half my advertising, I just don't know which half. Mm-hmm. So now they know exactly which advertising is working and which advertising doesn't, and they can get their, the buyer directly without bothering to collect these newspapers. So the things that were unprofitable to cover, like city council meetings and corruption stories and so forth, much less far-off wars in Yemen, there's no there's no economic incentive to cover those things anymore, and the people living in their in their own media worlds aren't getting that. So so those people can do whatever they want. Um, so that's that's I think the great cost of democracy of of uh, of the collapse of the economic model of media yeah. and the subsequent balkanization. I mean, that's as you su- as you suggested, the person a person who is determined to find out about a given issue has a lot of resources available today. I mean, I mean, it's, it's much easier for a person sitting in their office or their, their study to, to, to bone up on the Yemen situation, uh, and really genuinely learn about it if they're skilled in the way they use the different resources available than it was decades ago. That's the 1%. That's the 1%. Yeah, you're right. It's an elite, it's an elite enterprise. And, 
and, and even many so-called elites, I think, are caught in their own uh, caught up in their own bubbles to judge by their behavior on social media. So, um, no, I'm not. You know, I'm not optimistic necessarily. But then again, I've never been optimistic about anything. So <laughs> people should discount for that. Now, if you are going to tell us that you are constitutionally an optimist and you're pessimistic, that would be cause for concern. I don't know if that's the case. Most definitely not the case. Okay, then people uh, have nothing to worry about. Okay. We're just I, giving I, them what people I, like us I, give. I, I, I tend to take a, a pessimistic position on things so that I might be pleasantly surprised. Um, I, I think for me that became almost a superstition at a very young age. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, really. I, I think well, I we can agree on that. I developed this idea that if you predict something bad will happen, it won't. It won't happen. I think, it, like at age eight, I came to believe that, and it's kind of stuck. But. No, I think it will happen. But it's nice to be pleasantly surprised, and and also to trip yourself up and to occasionally be wrong. Again, I wish that happened more often. So yeah, well. Important. So well, is my partner. She would very much like me to be wrong more often. I'll bet that. she would. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a good problem to have. Uh, well, thanks, Eric. So you're going to, um, I guess now you'll have a little more time to devote to your uh, Israel book? Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. So we'll and my teaching, see and my students, and my yep. students. Well, just to be uh, to be clear, the, the nation is ending my column after 25 years, but I'm going to be contributing editor, and they uh, they've asked me to write longer pieces. So the nation will still be the place to find the the wit and wisdom of Eric Alterman. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you, Eric. This was a lot of fun. Okay, good. Anytime. Bye-bye.